This is Geraldine Hasselpool, FMH blogger and all-around Mormon feminist superstar. If you have enjoyed the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast as much or more than you have enjoyed a Mormon casserole or a salad recipe from the children's friend, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the podcast. Your donation supports the amplification of women's voices, past, present, and future. Please give and give generously, and then deduct it from your taxes like a true American, and then eat some funeral potatoes. Hey, you've earned it. Welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand and untangle the practice of Mormon plural marriage. If this is your first time tuning in, I'd recommend going all the way back to episode one as this series is meant to go in order and give you context for what we're going to be talking about today. And you can also listen to this online at yearofpolygamy.com where you can get all the episodes in order without all the other feminist episodes that we talk about on Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. So without further ado, I'm bringing on two fantastic historians. Um, I'm sure if you know anything about church history, you've heard of these people. Someone is returning, and that is John Hamer. John Hamer, can you say hello? Hello. Great to be back. Um, I'm excited about the, how you're wrapping up this this incredible series you've been doing. Yeah. You, are you trying to say you want it to be done? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's been going on for more than a year. I know. <laughs> Hamer gives me so much trouble about this. He's like, really? You're still calling it a year of polygamy? I don't think you can do that. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, this will no, be the last time we ever have John Hamer on the, on the program. But uh, <laughs> actually, it will probably be the last time we have you on for the series. Um, but yeah, I love John Hamer, and you were just recently on an episode with us, right? Yep, so we had just barely done one, and then um, I was on one right at the beginning, too. Uh, and so anyway, I'm pretty... This it, it has been a wonderful series. And so I guess for by way of background, um, people may know I'm a member of Community of Christ, which is the former RLDS church. I'm pastor of my congregation here in, in Toronto, which is the Mormon equivalent of being bishop of a congregation. But I've also done a lot of history research into Community of Christ and early church history, including I was a past president and a past director of the John Whitmer Historical Association. Yeah, and um, you're also one of my favorite people ever. I said that last <laughs> time. I feel like I need you're to one say of my it. favorite people ever. Oh, so. <laughs> stop! Okay, don't stop. So, um, also someone who I've been trying to get on the program for a long time, who I have relied heavily on his research. So it's such an honor to have him on the wonderful Don Bradley. Don, can you say hello? Hello. So tell us about yourself. Um, so I am a historian of Mormonism. Um, I started doing my first church history research as a teenager at about 16 by the time I was 17, I was going to the LDS Church Historical Department and doing projects there, including as as early as that time, um, research on Joseph Smith's polygamy and DNC 132 and Mormon fundamentalism. Later in my adult life, I 
actually left the LDS church for several years um, and then later returned to the LDS church about five years ago. I'm currently getting a master's in history at Utah State, pub, uh, working with Philip Barlow. And I have a book that will be coming forth pretty soon on the lost 116 pages of the Book of Mormon. So excited for that. And is it fair to say that you, can we talk about your, your partnership with Brian House? Yeah, actually, uh, that would be good to talk about. So, um, Brian Hales, who has written, you know, the history on Mormon fundamentalism, uh, and then the gigantic series, uh, Joseph Smith's Polygamy, uh, about eight years ago, uh, was starting his Joseph Smith's Polygamy project. And what he wanted to do was to gather every source that's been cited in everything that's ever been written on Joseph Smith and polygamy and then see what else could be found. But Brian uh, himself is an anesthesiologist at a hospital and didn't have time to do the research. And so he hired me, you know, of course, like I said, Joseph Smith's polygamy was already an area of my research, but now for about two years, I worked uh, with him for him as his research assistant Gathering all those sources, I went back to Yale and mined the D. Michael Quinn collection and the other uh, sources that they have there. I went to all the different repositories in Utah, um, had a friend check some in California, and we were able to get not only all the sources others had gathered, uh, but also find hundreds of sources that had not been used previously. Well, awesome. And, uh, I think your, your work has been so important. And, and you have basically been the main lead researcher on any Fanny Alger. So I'm going to ask you, is it Alger yeah. or Alger while we have you on the So second? I still am trying to learn to say it correctly. It is actually Alger. So, so with an ah sound and then a hard G. Um, and I, finally found this out by talking to some people who are in the, the Alger family, um, living descendants of Fanny Alger's brother, John, who came out to Utah. So yeah, it's Al Alger, but I still usually say it Alger. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for clearing that up because that's been, um, now, something now that we're all going to say it right now. <laughs> thank you. Right. <laughs> you know what? I have people con correct me all the time, and part of it is just mispronunciation, and, and part of it is just my Utah accent. So it's kind of hit or miss. <laughs> so tonight we're going to talk about something really, really exciting. This is this is why I have these these two together: um, someone from the Community of Christ and someone from the LDS Church, because we're going to talk about sort of. The story of dueling cousins. And I've, and I've alluded to this in previous episodes about the story of LDS Joseph versus RLDS Joseph. Joseph F. Smith versus Joseph Smith III. It's a fascinating story. It's very much tied up in the story of polygamy. And it's a story of a family, the next generation of prophets, if you will. And so Don and John, I didn't realize that we had done that as well. We'd rhymed you guys are coming on to, um, to explain that. And so maybe Don, you can start by telling us about your article. Sure. So there's a series that, uh, the John Whitmer historical association that John mentioned earlier has been doing a three volume series called the persistence of polygamy. 
And in the second volume that talks about polygamy between Joseph Smith's death and the 1890 manifesto, um, I did an article along with Brian Hales that's called LDS Joseph versus RLDS Joseph, the battle to control the public memory of Joseph Smith. And what it's about really is how these two cousins, you know, these two, they're both Joseph Smiths. And they both, uh, it's, it's basically, it's Joseph, just Joseph, if you will, and Hiram's Joseph. They're sort of, uh, religious royalty in their respective, um, communities. They each end up becoming the prophet president of their church. And they have completely opposite approaches to the subject of polygamy, both in terms of how they feel about its morality and what they say about whether their namesake prophet, Joseph Smith, practiced it and taught it. And um, the article tracks both the conflict between them and how that conflict actually helps to produce much of the historical record of Joseph Smith's polygamy. And in fact, specifically, uh, Joseph Smith III's denials that his father did teach and practice polygamy was what prompted Utah Latter-day Saints, and particularly his cousin, Joseph F., to document Joseph Smith's polygamy. So there's this very ironic result of uh, Joseph Smith III's denials, and that is that thanks to those denials, we have a good record of his father's polygamy. So we've done an episode on Joseph F. Smith a little bit, giving sort of a primer on his life and a little bit about him. But maybe, John, can you let us know a little bit about Joseph Smith III? In the LDS tradition, we're not very familiar with him. Sure. Um, yeah, we talked a little bit about it because we talked, and especially about the RLDS um, vision of of Joseph Smith. I'm sorry. So it's going to be complicated. So the, it's Joseph Smith Sr. is the the father of the whole family who becomes the first patriarch evangelist of the church. Joseph Smith Jr. is the main prophet. In the, in the RLDS tradition, we call Joseph Jr. Joseph the Seer, but essentially he's the first founding prophet and president of the church. And then Joseph III then is his eldest son, surviving son, who survives to childhood or to adulthood. And so uh, that tends to get confusing. People forget that Joseph, anyway, that Joseph Jr. is the is the main one that people think of, and then this is the third. So Joseph the third um, is born in Kirtland in um, 1832. He's born in the um, the store there. What's it called? The Whitney store up in the upstairs of that, and he you know lives through a lot of the 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 whole. Ex- exoduses of early Mormon history. So leaving Kirtland, uh, leaving far west, uh, leaving far west when after the Missouri Mormon War, uh, goes to Nauvoo and he is an 11 year old boy at the time of the martyrdom. Uh, in the course of that time period, um, he's received from his father a bunch of blessings that are evangelical or patriarchal blessings or other blessings in which he kind of and other people around him remember that there's a prediction that he'll one day lead the church, and so a lot of people at the time of the succession crisis still have that in their heads. 
And that's true for all the people who, especially all the people who end up forming the reorganized church. Of course, at the time of the martyrdom, he's only 11 years old, so there's really no, no possibility of that. Uh, but anyway, he's with his, um, mom, uh, Emma, who stays. She's a antagonistic towards Brigham Young and vice versa and doesn't go west, uh, with Brigham Young and his organization of the church and instead continues to grow up in, in Nauvoo, uh, where he and his family are not, they, they say that essentially they're aloof from any of the factions of, the saints, any of the factions of the church, there's everybody tends to come by and want to have him join up with them. So Strang would like him to come and become a Strangite because it would give the Strangite church a lot of legitimacy. Uh, Brighamite or Brigham Young's missionaries come and, and also want him to come with them, come out to Utah and have his place there. Uh, but he isn't interested in doing any of those things, especially because of this, um, the issue of polygamy. And so, although it turns out that Emma was aware, as we know, as from your podcast and all the research and everything like that, although she was aware of the practice and that her husband was engaging in that, uh, she was not aware of the extent of it in any, to any, to any degree, you know, so he was keeping much of his practice a secret from her. And even in the case of the, some of the marriages that, um, she was aware of, he had like precedingly previously married these girls and, um, and kept that part a secret from her. So anyway, so she, she, although she occasionally, um, had conceded and, and obeyed and decided that she would be willing to participate in it or approve of it to some extent or other. She regretted that. And, um, ultimately I think was, uh, you know, ultimately rejected the doctrine entirely and then raised, um, her kids to be quite antagonistic towards it or to share her antagonism. And so Joseph the third, although he's quite courted by other factions who are polygamists, um, including the church in Utah is very antagonistic to polygamy. And so it's ultimately when a Midwestern, uh, church, um, of the saints, the, the new organization it was originally, originally called of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints comes together as an anti-polygamist Mormon church. Um, he's drawn to that in part because of, um, uh, the association of that church with, with William Marks, who had been a great friend of him and his mother and their family. And in part because of its, op- its opposition to polygamy. And then in part because he felt that he was called by a power not his own, that he had a divine calling to go and lead that church. So thank you for that. And that's, that's really helpful. And I think we'll set the stage for what we're going to talk about. But Don, maybe you can tell us, meanwhile, what is happening to Joseph F. Smith while uh, Joseph Smith III is going through all of this? Sure. So, um, Joseph F., I know you've talked about him before, um, just briefly. He's born uh, to Joseph's brother Hiram in, uh, and <laughs> he's born uh, as his son in 1838, just a few days after the extermination order. Um, he's, I think, um, like five when, uh, his father and Joseph Smith are killed. He goes west very early with the Utah pioneers. And so he grows up in a context of um, polygamy. He knows from his mother um, 
Mary Fielding Smith, that um, that uh, his father Hiram had practiced polygamy. Uh, he grows up around polygamists, and so his experience in that regard is very, very different from that of Joseph Smith III. And um, he becomes, he doesn't become a, like a member of the LDS Quorum of Twelve until something like 1877 or 78, but he's ordained um, an apostle nonetheless by Brigham Young in 1866, and Brigham has him take a plural wife at that time, too. So the two uh, cousins, Joseph, are on um, completely opposite trajectories when it comes to polygamy. Okay, so these two are sort of set up to um, oppose each other later on. But before we get into it, do we know, do they have any sort of connection. I know that they're living worlds apart on the frontier, but do we know, is there any sort of familial bond that these two have as children? I don't know a lot about that. They certainly, they would have, they're several years apart, but they lived um, close to each other. They certainly would have known and remembered one another. And I, I believe that early on they did um, have fond feelings of family for one another, even even pretty late in their lives. Um, there's a time after the manifesto when Joseph Smith III comes out to Utah and um, Joseph F. Smith, uh, he actually, Joseph Smith III actually visits with Joseph F. and his families, uh, his wives and children. And, um, they so they're still keeping up a family relationship of some kind, but uh, kind of as a joke at um, Joseph the Third's expense, um, the Joseph F. Smith family has created a parody song called "Oh That Manifesto," which they sing for uh, the cousin. Wow. <laughs> I don't think I've heard the song. So um, maybe I'll be able to link that. Do you guys? You I don't, don't know, the... know where the, I don't know if the lyrics are written. Um, I think Joseph F. Smith mentions it like in a letter um, that they, that they did this. And I imagine that it's, that they were just varying on a popular song at the time. Oh, that's, that's, I don't want to say that's funny. <laughs> Because I'm sure that's a, it's a really fraught thing because it's such a complicated issue. So maybe why don't you guys bring us into how this rivalry sort of starts? I don't think it's fair to call it a feud because it doesn't seem necessarily hostile, correct? No, I, I think it's, yeah. it's hostile. Oh, you do think it's hostile. Okay. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, I think that it's pretty, it's pretty clear. I, I was, I was doing, um, so Joseph the third actually ended up publishing very extensive memoirs and I was doing, you know, like before, prior to getting on for this podcast, I was doing kind of like scans through all of his memories or, I mean, every time that he mentions Joseph F. Smith in the course of whatever his, however many hundreds of 500, 700 page memoirs or whatever it is. And they're, they're extensive in a lot of them, but he, he doesn't have any, he, he tells like all kinds of, Joseph the third has an incredible memory and he his memoirs are are really rich for all of this um like boyhood memories of life in Nauvoo 
Um, and I don't, he doesn't have any, tell any stories with Joseph F. Smith in it, but it may just be because they're, they're just too far different in age by being six years apart, you know? So it would have it'd been just a little kid when he, when he left, you know? So where do Joseph we, F. Smith. yeah. So where do we see the hostility start to begin? Well, my understanding of it is when, when Joseph the third, so the, so when Joseph the third and, um, accepts a position as prophet and president of the reorganized church, that that's pretty well a, um, and very antagonistic, uh, moved against the, uh, church organization headquartered in, in Utah. So against Brigham Young. And so it, it goes from being, um, the people there go from feeling like they have the potential to woo him and maybe get him to come out and, and become one of the apostles out there or whatever he would be to now he's definitely taken a line in the stand and he's in opposition to them. And he's making a rival claim to the legitimacy of, or, of, of who is running the church and everything like that. And so, um, at different times, fairly quickly on, um, Joseph, first it's his brothers or, uh, some of the other, Smith brothers go out to Utah on missions and, and there's a real possibility because of people that out there still remember Joseph Smith and they were, and they were drawn often into the movement because of, uh, these younger men's father. They can, they can see Joseph Smith in these younger guys and some of them, uh, especially Alexander, I think, you know, is said to, to look an awful lot like his father. And also people have these, um, memories of sort of a, um, prophecies about David Hiram Smith, perhaps. And so people are also very interested in him. And so there's a lot of, um, potential, uh, that people would have to be like, well, wait a second. Maybe I'm, maybe I should rethink and, and see what Joseph Smith's sons are saying. And maybe, you know, should take a second look at that. And so as a result, there's a, um, a defensive reaction that the leadership in Salt Lake has. And one of those things is, uh, that Brigham Young, uh, you know, it, it turns up the rhetoric about Emma. Mm-hmm. So he says really quite awful things from the pulpit about Emma and she's the most wicked woman. And Joseph Smith said he'd lead her to hell or whatever, all these kind of, these kind of rhetorical things that, um, that the Smith boys then are not particularly pleased with that. <laughs> <laughs> So and just then, as a just as a recap, because I think the majority of our listeners are going to know this, but some people might not. And I know this is a really complicated question, but why is it important for the RLDS church to prove that polygamy doesn't come from Joseph Smith? If you could like sum it up briefly. Well, okay, so it, it isn't necessarily important. It becomes important to Joseph the Third. And so because it's important to Joseph the Third, it becomes important to the RLDS church because he is prophet of the RLDS church for, um, 50, 54 years. And so in the course of his, that's his position. And in the course of his lifetime, that becomes the dominant position of the church. When he is young and early in, in, in these missionary times and going out to Utah, there are many RLDS leaders who have been gathered from Nauvoo times who are actually aware, you know, that uh, Joseph Jr. is the originator of Mormon bigamy, in which Joseph the Third was able to kind of either argue them into silence or not believe them or not believe their um, their anecdotal evidence. Uh, and so he 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 has a position that he wants to maintain, 
and that ultimately becomes the RLDS position at least until the 1970s. But it's not just about it's so, not just about um, Emma's um like you know Emma's feelings. It's also about Joseph Smith the Third's legitimate claims to Joseph's mantle, right? Because if polygamy exists, you- then we could argue that Brigham sort of is the one that's carrying this practice that Joseph has restored. So it's a, so it's a question of authority. So here's Joseph III's quote that I that I always that I have out, I pulled out of his memoirs that this is this kind of explains his position really strongly. So he says, "quote There is this is Joseph III. There is but one principle taught by the leaders or any faction of this people, that is to say, the Latter Day Saint people, that I hold in utter abhorrence. That is a principle taught by Brigham Young and those believing in him. I have been told that my father taught such doctrines." I have never believed it, and I never can believe it. If such things were done, then I believe they never were done by divine authority. I believe my father was a good man, and a good man could never have promulgated such doctrines. So that's a a very nuanced legalese kind of position. And so it's saying all kinds of things that are inherent in Joseph III. So one, he is absolutely, he's an absolute opponent of polygamy. Two, um, he thinks that polygamy, if it, what, if his father did, you know, he's been told by lots of people that his father is the person that started Mormon polygamy. He says that if that was true, then that would not have been done by divine authority. So regardless of whether his father was involved, it's definitely not of God. But then he adds on that though, and this is the part I think that, um, uh, that Don pulls out in his his article and his title of his article, he says, "I believe my father was a good man, and a good man never could have promulgated such doctrines." So that's a statement of faith at the end, not a statement of 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 com- conclusive evidence or anything like that. So his his point here is that there is a good Joseph Smith that he remembers, and he doesn't believe that that Joseph Smith therefore could have been. Um, associated with something that he abhors. Right. There, there are a lot of questions that have been raised about Joseph Smith III's motives and how much did he know, like, did he really know that his father practiced polygamy but still deny it? And um, Brian, with whom I worked, um, as I understand his conclusions, he thinks that Joseph Smith III really knew um, that his father had practiced polygamy I read the evidence on that somewhat differently. There's a letter, and I can't actually remember if it's Joseph Smith III's letter to E.C. Brand or if it's somebody else. I don't have it on hand, but uh, one of the letters that we turned up in our research was from Joseph Smith III to another um, RLDS church official under him. And that um, person, that uh, RLDS official, had been in Utah and Joseph Smith III had questions for him. He wanted him to go and talk to various women who were supposedly wives of Joseph Smith. And um, Joseph III, in the letter, actually seems open to the possibility that his father really did practice this. He doesn't believe that his father did. And he says something at one point in the letter like, um, well, if he names a particular woman and I can't remember if it was Melissa Lott or someone else, but he says like her, I think I might believe if she said it. 
Um, but he, he makes clear that most of the people who commented on this, he doesn't regard them as trustworthy. And maybe because they were themselves involved in polygamy, you know, married, these women were married to Brigham Young and the men were involved in polygamy. And so he thinks they have self-serving reasons why they might say that his father taught it. But, um, he, he doesn't think that his father taught it. And even if his father did teach it, as John was bringing out, he personally thinks that it's wrong. And I think he thinks it would have been a private wrong on his father's part. It's a doctrine that was never, uh, had not been formally accepted by the church. Uh, certainly not the, you know, pre Joseph Smith's pre martyrdom church. And I think Justice Smith the third also recognizes that there's a need for a clear message. And so instead of giving, you know, the trumpet giving an uncertain sound, right? Well, maybe Justice Smith practiced polygamy, but it was wrong. He takes a very hard line position that it's wrong and his father didn't practice it. And I think he may have had, uh, I think it's likely that he also has personal motives like, um, He's, he's clearing his family name and he's also literally clearing his own name because his name is Joseph Smith. Right. You know, um, and he, he also doesn't want, he believes polygamy is wrong and he doesn't want wrongs, this wrong to continue to be done in his father's name. And so when the manifesto is issued, Joseph Smith III feels quite vindicated that now, you know, at least in theory, this, um, baleful practice won't be carried out in his father's name. So, so I think that's really good um, to talk about Joseph Smith, the third, tell us why it would be important. And I guess it seems obvious to, to myself as an LDS member, but why would it be important for the church to be so adamant to prove this? I mean, they had already, I guess, sort of sacrificed so much. They were opposing the government. They were living this. Why did they care what Joseph Smith III thought about their um, legitimacy? So so the, the situation is um, preceding Joseph F. Smith starting to collect evidence. So he starts collecting affidavits in 1869. And it's interesting to look at what the situation is before he starts creating the affidavits. Um, initially, there really isn't evidence. Um, there isn't much in the way of written evidence for Joseph Smith's polygamy. Uh, in fact, it's it appears that the early um, polygamists in Nauvoo and then the early Utah polygamists actually think that the less of a written record they have of polygamy, the better. That, that the written record is actually a liability. So even the revelation, DNC 132, Joseph Smith doesn't allow it to be recorded until he's at a, a serious crisis point in his relationship with Emma and Hiram wants the revelation recorded so that he can take it to Emma and supposedly convince her of it, which doesn't go very well at all. Um, and, um, uh, even even then, Hiram doesn't usually show. Hiram goes around; he becomes a, a firm convert to polygamy. He's going around Nauvoo and converting other people to it. But even then, he's usually not taking the manuscript of the Revelation. He memorizes the Revelation and usually communicates it to people orally. Um, and it's worth noting too that having that Revelation written 
and then distribute it so that people like William Law see it is one of the things that helps to get Joseph Smith killed. Um, and so there really is not much of a good reason early on for the polygamous saints to have a written record of anything that they've been doing with polygamy. Uh, as of 1862, polygamy is also against federal law, at least uh, I think polygamy in the territories. Utah was a territory. Um, so what, um, what the RLDS has and, you know, what Joseph Smith III has that he can point to is an actual written record that shows Joseph Smith having been against polygamy. So you've got a statement that Joseph publishes in the Elder's Journal in 1838 or 39, denying that Latter-day Saints believe in having more than one wife. Uh, you've got denials that he makes in 1842 in the face of uh, John C. Bennett's um, expose, where Joseph uh, is denying that there's polygamy. Um, and most importantly, you've got in the Doctrine and Covenants actually a section called the Article on Marriage that was included in the original, was voted on by the by a church conference in 1835, accepted and put in the original Doctrine and Covenants. And it says that the church does not believe in polygamy, but just believes that, you know, there should be one man and one woman together. And uh, even in Utah, this is still scripture. So the canon as of, you know, 1869 is still officially against polygamy. What the Utah saints have in favor of polygamy, other than the written revelation, they do have copies of DNC 132, which isn't in the DNC yet, but um, they, they have copies of that and they have oral reports. They're, they remember Joseph Smith said, Joseph Smith taught me polygamy or Joseph Smith uh, sealed a wife to me or I was married to Joseph Smith. So there's oral, oral report that Joseph F. Smith grows up with and hears. Um, but when uh, Joseph Smith III sends his brothers Alexander and David out to Utah in 1867 to preach, his sons are in Utah and they're denying that their father practiced this. And it appears to be this that makes Joseph F. Smith aware um, that they really have no written record with which they can prove to the these RLDS cousins or others that Joseph Smith practiced or taught polygamy. He writes a letter later where he talks about this and he says, when the subject first came before my mind, I was astonished by the almost total absence of strict evidence on the subject. And um, he realizes that they don't have, you know, legal style evidence and that because they don't have a written record, they don't have anything that will last. That once the people who were involved die, that's the end of the record. And so this is what prompts him to start collecting the affidavits. So tell us why the affidavits are important and sort of how they come about and what ha I guess you've told us how they come about, but what happens? And this is where I start to really see, especially in your article, Don, um, where the dueling really comes out because these two start 
sort of a lifetime battle against each other through the stories of other people. Right, 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 right. Um, so it, it looks like it's on, I mean, the earliest affidavits appear to be on May 1st of 1869. And Joseph F. Smith actually keeps, um, several affidavit books. Um, he keeps, um, two sets. He keeps four books, but it's like two sets of two books. So he has one set that he creates for himself to keep and one set that he apparently creates for the church historian's office. Um, and he takes, apparently takes the books around at first to women that he knows were sealed to Joseph Smith, um, and has them, you know, say in front of a uh, notary public that they were married to Joseph, who performed the ceremony, what the date was, and he's just trying to create some basic record because basically up until this point, there really is almost nothing. People are not recording it in their journals. Um, and later that year, um, George A. Smith, who is a, a family member, he's a, a cousin of uh, Joseph, um, writes a letter to Joseph III laying out some of what he knows about Joseph's polygamy. And so there's, there's, there seems to be an effort from the Utah LDS Smiths to try to convince the RLDS Smiths by giving them, uh, some of the evidence. And, and we might, might, might mention that George, yeah. we might mention that George A. Smith is a cousin of Joseph Jr. since they're all named Joseph when you right. say cousin right. of Joseph anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Joseph F. Smith really, I mean, it's actually surprising to me to read what he wrote about collecting the affidavits because he was, um, 30, he wasn't even 30 yet. At, uh, no, sorry. He was, he was 30 when he started collecting the affidavits, but he's really, really thinking long term. He's thinking what happens when all the people who are involved die. He's looking to a time like now, right? when there's nobody around who was involved. And so he's trying to create this permanent record. It doesn't look like at first, I, I don't know of any evidence early on that he's actually sharing the affidavits. So he really seems to at least initially be trying to create a record for posterity, you know, for people out in the future. And it's significant because um, for one thing, it gives us um, names and dates and, you know, information about who was performing these that in some cases we wouldn't otherwise have or that where we may have just second or third hand evidence that says a certain woman was married to Joseph Smith. But then with these affidavits, we also have confirmation from the women themselves that they were married to him. Um, there are some cases where the women apparently would not sign because there are a couple affidavits that are made uh, that are written out, but then the woman never signed it. Um, the, the conflict really continues. And, um, there's, um, John, what, what year is the temple lot case? Well, that's much later. The temple case is a lot later. Uh, okay. okay. Then I guess the next thing really w would be, um, in, um, 
1885, actually, Joseph Smith III comes out to Utah and on a mission of his own for a number of months and um, is, you know, preaching in favor of his claims and, of course, against polygamy. And this actually prompts um, Andrew Jensen to do similarly to what Joseph F. Smith had done and go out and gather information from the um, some of the surviving participants, mostly the wives, um, and publish that to refute the RLDS claims. And like one one really interesting episode from during that period is uh, John Taylor is actually in is then uh, is then the LDS prophet. He's in hiding from the federal marshals. Um, and he reportedly has a vision of Joseph Smith Jr., who comes to him and tells him that he's very sad to see his son Joseph III traveling through Utah preaching against the principle that he had given his own life to establish. Um, and I don't know that for sure that the account can be traced back to John Taylor, but it's something that's circulating in Utah. Um, and so you've clearly got a lot of concern amongst the Utah Latter-day Saints that, you know, Joseph Smith III is trying to undermine what they see, what people like Joseph F. Smith see as a vital part of Joseph Jr.'s legacy. So and, I want to talk- say that while he's doing that, while Joseph, while Joseph III is running around doing this at the time too, he also is kind of undertaking his own investigation. He doesn't have as many resources maybe open to him as he's doing it, but he'll go around and he visits, well, you know, people from old people from the time period too. Mm-hmm. And, and the difference is on the one hand though, is that one, he's, he's personally looking for smoking gun evidence only. So he yeah. really is looking to find, you have to show me something that like, like Don says is a document from the time period or some kind of thing that proves it. Because otherwise, your hearsay isn't going to be brought into evidence, except for actually he records, you know, like I mentioned his memoirs, he records like just umpteen people from Nauvoo who will either are either telling him kind of what he wants to hear or weren't aware of polygamy in the first place in Nauvoo, maybe because they weren't part of the inner circle, or at yeah. least at Joseph Jr.'s time. And so he records all kinds of people who he regards as having been in the know in old Nauvoo who were telling him, oh, no, I never heard of um, polygamy until after your father's death. And so, and so still there is a, at the time period anyway, when Joseph, um, the third is in, and Joseph F. Smith are, uh, you know, dueling it out over this, where there's, it's a, there's a lot of ambiguous evidence back and forth on this. And on mm-hmm. the other hand, Joseph the third is kind of holding out for, um, he's trained as a lawyer as opposed to, I mean, obviously they're not trained historians. We don't have trained historians in the movement until much later than this. And so his, his standard that he really wants is he wants to be proved in a court of law kind of thing. And, and they're not able to supply that. Right. So I wanted to ask you guys really quick because, uh, we're focusing on these two, obviously that's the thrust of this podcast, but, I'm really interested in how the affidavits really focus on these women's stories. This is how we get a lot of their information. These women say some things that are pretty bold about their intimate lives, especially for the time period. And there's a sense, at least to me, that 
their stories really become politicized even today. And so sometimes, you know, in with a full awareness that I talk about these women's stories, these personal stories, I've seen them used um, as ammunition to further different agendas. And sometimes that makes me uncomfortable. So can you guys talk about these women really quick in the stories and maybe how the stories were gathered? Do we know anything about that? So, John, do you want to um, just introduce briefly the Temple Lot case since that's the context in which the women are really asked about the sexuality and talk about that? Yeah. So so a little later, um, I think it's in, in, 18, in the 1890s, 1891, um, uh, there's a case that's called Temple Lot case that the RLDS Church brings against the Church of Christ Temple Lot, which is a different faction of the Restoration besides the Brighamite and Josephite churches. And so this is the Hedrickite Church, and we now think of it as the Church of Christ Temple Lot. Um, it's a much smaller church that had uh, that its main claim to fame is they uh, they had been the first Latter Day Saint group to um, get the get a revelation or impetus to return and redeem Zion, Jackson County, Missouri, and they moved back uh, before anybody else, and they themselves purchased um, all of the lots, the lot, the, um, the what had been this place that had been set aside in the early 1830s by junior church leaders as being the first temple in the in the New Jerusalem. Um, they had a plat of Zion, or actually two plats of Zion, that uh, that anticipated building 24 temples in the middle of this city, and they dedicated the space for one of them. Um, that space was a little field outside of the town of Independence in the early 1830s. By by the time the Temple Lot Church got back in the 18 um, 60s or 70s in the late 1860s, it had, the plat of independence had moved out and encompassed this, and so it was actually city lots that they were buying, and they purchased about eight city lots uh, that were with the, that they recalled were the traditional spot that um, that had been dedicated as the central temple spot. But it's not actually even known whether they're right. <laughs> so in other words, this is one of these traditional spots. Um, things had changed an awful lot in the intervening 30 years. To their best of their knowledge, this is where it was, and that's what, what they ended up purchasing. Um, the RLDS church had had um, an interesting experience with the courts over the Kirtland Temple in the preceding decade. So um, the Kirtland Temple had had kind of an ambiguous ownership because the early church had failed to pay the taxes. The church had actually abandoned the property because of bankruptcy and all these kind of things. And over time, um, local saints who were not affiliated with any of the different churches continued to live in the area. They would meet in the temple. When when Brighamite missionaries would come through, they'd be associated with the Brigham Young's church. When Strang came there, they reorganized it as a Strangite stake. Martin Harris was one of the guys that was hanging out there for a whole long time. But a lot of times they weren't really affiliated with anybody. But there were some local groups that um, successfully maintained the Kirtland Temple. And in fact, they saved it for all of us because they sacrificed a lot in order to put a new roof on it and things like that. And it wouldn't have survived if it hadn't have been cared for to at least that extent, a building like that. Anyway, so um, the ownership of it, though, with the title to it wasn't entirely clear. And the um, RLDS church leaders got the idea that if they filed a lawsuit for the to own the Kirtland Temple, for the ownership of the Kirtland Temple, that 
they would be able to prove legally in the courts that the RLDS church was the original church founded in 1830 and was the original church through 1844. And the the legal continuation of that was the RLDS church. And that was the RLDS conceit. And it was also really, really important to the RLDS church to get that legitimation since they they had the Smiths. They had a lot of different things like the Book of Mormon manuscript, but they didn't have the members that were all out in Utah. And so um, through a, a, a taking that through the court case, um, the, the ultimately what was proved was um, nobody got to own Kirtland Temple based on being the original church, but in fact the RLDS church owned it because of adverse possession, which means that they've they're squatters. They've been sitting on it this entire time and they've been paying the taxes. And so whoever was doing that after this many years, you know, has possession of property. And so the title was given clearly to the RLDS church, but there was a ruling in the course of it, of that, of that case, the case was thrown out, but there was a ruling in the course of it, which showed that, which RLDS people read to indicate that, um, that an Ohio judge was saying that the RLDS church was the legal successor of the original church. It's not really – anyway, it ended up being something that, that RLDS people felt very vindicated about. It doesn't really have any standing and really why any court should be able to say what the true church is isn't – doesn't really make a lot of sense to us now. But at the time, you know, these were fairly – everybody in the – it was fairly simple people and the idea that having, you know, the government or the courts on your side and the courts have actually proved that you're the church – was a big deal to them. And so then they got this idea, well, that's, everything's going good with these court cases. Why don't we do the same thing with the temple lot, the other temple lot, the temple lot in Missouri? And so here were the, here was the, um, temple lot church that had possession of the temple lot. Um, and the RLDS church then sued the temple lot church on the grounds that the RLDS church was legally the original church. And so, um, the end, what ends up happening though, as opposed to the Ohio case where, where the LDS church um, was named but didn't participate at all in the suit and didn't care about the suit. In this case, um, the propaganda was an, enough or whatever that the LDS church actually entered in on the side of the, the Temple Lot Church in order to disprove the, the RLDS contention that uh, – that it was the legal continuation of the original church. <laughs> so it's a complicated propaganda thing, huh? <laughs> so, or legitimacy, battle for legal legitimacy. And this is what I'm talking about because the in the the pawns in sort of these battle are these women, right? And they still are and very much in the way that we talk about polygamy and Joseph Smith. Right. Um, but, the, yeah. but the beauty on both of it is, both for these original affidavits that Joseph F. Smith is is collecting all around Utah, I mean, maybe the, the stories weren't originally used for anything other than, like you're saying, maybe being pawns in how you're making this argument. Same thing with the Temple Lot affidavits. But ultimately, for historians, the I mean, having these um, these stories so enriches our understanding of the practice of polygamy in Nauvoo. We wouldn't know any of the, these details if it weren't because it wasn't written down, you know? And so right. because of this battle, I mean, right. which overtly, like you say, was using the women in this way, but because it, we recorded their stories in order to do this, their stories now are preserved to us, and so we can recover their stories and we can see how important this was for their lives, you know? And so it enriches our understanding of the whole history of right. it because of right, it. Right, right. So, I, I mean, of course, the the polygamy issue becomes a big deal in the Temple Lot case precisely because Joseph Smith III is maintaining that the original church was opposed to polygamy, the original church leader was opposed to polygamy, 
And um, so you've got, like John talked about, this strange sort of um, confluence of interest between the temple lot, the Church of Christ temple lot, and the LDS church. The Church of Christ temple lot totally rejects polygamy, um, but both uh, that church and the LDS church have an interest in proving that the reorganized church is wrong, is not the true successor. And so these uh, women are uh, brought in as witnesses on the question of whether Joseph Smith taught and practiced polygamy. And in order to um, the uh, in order to make absolutely clear in what sense they were wives, the uh, I believe it's actually I, I don't remember for sure. I think it's actually the RLDS attorneys who pressed the point of whether they had conjugal relations with Joseph Smith. It's absolutely clear from the testimony how uncomfortable these women are with the question. The answers have to be dragged out of them. And even when they answer, they answer in the most oblique <laughs> kinds yeah. of ways that they can. They, they'll say, like, I was, I was his a, wife in very I, deed. You know? I was his wife in every sense, you know, in all yep. senses of the word wife. Right. You know, that's kind of, yeah. And that's incredibly valuable because this is, this is the heart of the Victorian era. You're not going to have in ordinary circumstances, you know, these elderly religious women talking, saying anything about their sex lives. And so it's the, yeah, the context of this court case, it, it drags it out of them so that we know more, we know from the, from the testimony and the cross-examination, we know more about the circumstances of their marriages to Joseph Smith, and we know something about the sexuality. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think, and I think it is important. I just, want to always remind people when we talk about it, because, you know, I will see online discussions all the time where they are using these women's stories only to sort of to hit Joseph Smith over the head, which I'm not trying to tell people what to do either way. But it's just it's just a problem, I think, that we have in general when we tell women's stories. So and I think you guys framed that up nicely for us. So thank you for that. And and I agree that it's um it's such great stuff that we have. And Todd Compton, a lot of his work reflects these stories as well. Do you guys want to talk about what this info means for us now? Do you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. And let me let me say one thing first about some of the final shots fired in this battle. Um, it, in 1901, Joseph F. Smith becomes the president of the LDS Church. So now you have one Joseph Smith as president of the LDS church and the other Joseph Smith as president of the RLDS church. And the one's the polygamist, of course, and the other, the monogamist. And even though the LDS church has officially stopped authorizing new plural marriages, um, you have the Reed Smoot hearings during this time that give a lot of press coverage to the LDS church, bring out that it has allowed some new plural marriages after the manifesto. And, Joseph, uh, Joseph Smith III takes the opportunity at this point to again try to set the record straight, right, and say his father was not involved in polygamy and put out some evidence for that. This then prompts Joseph F. Smith to find, to seek out some of the few survivors, right, from more than six decades earlier uh, who knew 
Joseph Smith and his practice of polygamy, like Benjamin F. Johnson, whose sister married Joseph Smith, and have them write letters and to Joseph F. Smith, and he publishes them the Deseret News. And so right up until they're both, you know, uh, men in their 70s or, or 80s, uh, and prophets of their respective churches, they're still carrying on this battle to control the memory of Joseph Smith. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think there are a lot of implications. Um, one um, thing uh, that I see here is that I think the the difference between these two men and their positions in some ways reflects um, a difference between the two churches um, theologically. Of course, Joseph F. Smith and Joseph Smith III are differing to some extent on a historical question. Did Joseph Smith Jr. practice polygamy? But a, they have a deeper disagreement, too, that's theological, and that's driving their respective positions here. And that is that one church, the LDS, accepts the private, secret, esoteric teachings of Joseph Smith as a prophet and says these these were right because the prophet was teaching them. The other church uh, under Joseph Smith III is uh, only embracing the public statements that the prophet made and particularly only making authoritative the statements that had been uh, the statement that had been accepted by common consent by the church. So there's this 1835 article on marriage, right? It's, you know, Joseph, Joseph Smith, uh, presumably, there's some argument that he may, it was done while he was out of town and that he didn't know about it or something. But I think the best evidence actually is that he, he approved of it. Um, it was, it was, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't it passed because the church, in order to actually perform marriages, they actually had to have a, a legal, document in the in the law of the church they explained what their position yeah. on marriage is and everything like that yeah and obviously that so, so that that section is still in the community of christ doctrine and covenants of course today so right 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 and, right. and actually it has a it has a formula interestingly it has like a formula for marriage in the same way that um you know you have a formula for baptism you know i baptize you in the name of the father son and the holy ghost you know in the from the book of mormon so in other words it's kind of interesting to have found that out that you know the community of christ maintains that Anyway, you know, from yeah. that, 1835. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I missed your train of thought. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, I, I'm just, just pointing out that there's a there's there's a difference there that, of right. course, you would recognize from your experience of more of kind of a top down model where um, the prophet president speaks and gives revelation, even if he gives it secretly, and even if it's at odds with the accepted canon of the church, then it's accepted by the people versus the other model in which the only things that are authoritative for the church are the things that have come from the prophet and been accepted by the church on the principle of common consent. And so to Joseph Smith III, even if his father might have practiced polygamy, it really doesn't matter because the written canon accepted by the church was against it. 
And so it's, I think the conflict in some ways re- reflects that theological difference. Right. I think that's a great insight. I mean, that's obviously in that, that practice has continued and, and also that kind of position on profits has continued down to this day on community of Christ. And so, I mean, people who are Mormon actually ask me about that a fair amount, which is that, well, what is it? But, but what happens? What, but Joseph Smith taught that. So isn't that doctrine therefore? And then I, and I say, well, except for it's not, it doesn't become scripture to the church until, you know, the prophet, the prophet's role is to bring prophetic counsel or revelation to the church. And then the church decides whether it's scripture or not through the process of canonization at a general or world conference. So. And I also want to add that I think that it does one more thing other than just establishing this sort of theological context for marriage. I think documents like this um, contribute to a culture that becomes really well known in the polygamy churches, any any Mormon church, which is this idea of double speak, right? And so you'll have um, church leaders that will start and practice sort of doing these things. They'll have different documents that go out to different audiences. And, um, you know, I've interviewed Mike Quinn for one of the last episodes, and we talk a lot about this this practice and LDS um, culture and sort of history. But I, I also think that it it's more than just about theology for me. I think it sort of is where we start to see a real, um, I guess, documented precedent for this sort of, I don't know if the word is justification, if that's too harsh, for future um, Mormon leaders to do something similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, when you have the awareness the, you know, in the LDS tradition that the published statements are against what the actual private practices were, then there is an understanding that in order to protect the, the Joseph Smith's practice was in order to protect the church or however he justified it, he was saying statements that were at odds with his practice. So he was, whatever you call it, lying for the Lord or however you want to, however you want to characterize it, he would probably thought of himself as saying statements that were legally true word for word for word. But we're in, he was saying them in such a way as intended to give people the wrong impression from having heard them, which, mm. you know, anyway. And so, the, so just that idea. And, and in terms of that practice being carried on, um, Don was mentioning uh, the Smoot hearings when Joseph F. Smith is being questioned on the, like, the practice of pregnant polygamy by the, by the sen- senators under oath and stuff that he, he isn't as, used to being continually cross-examined. And so he says some of the statements on this, you know, um, he makes, you know, kind of statements that are this sort of Joseph Smith style, you know, he, he's saying things kind of overtly, but meaning something else. But then the senators get follow-ups and they're like, well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean this or do you mean this? And then, and then he admits it afterwards. So I, I think so it's more than just like um, doing it to protect themselves. I also think it does become at least a culture I think Don sort of pointed to this, which is there are laws of man and then there are the higher laws. And we see that, you know, sort of teased out throughout church history. So I think that this is part of it. It sort of plays into what we consider sacred versus what we consider public. And, and so, yeah, I think it's, I just wanted to point that out because I do think it has more, um, I'm so tired, guys. Sorry, I can't think of words tonight. <laughs> I think it has more of an impact than just the theology of the family. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay, so um I speaking of the implications if you if you want. Yeah, um, go ahead. Please do. 
Um, so, I mean, one I mentioned at the beginning is just that I just see like a delicious irony in the whole thing. It's just a really nice story. You know, you've got uh, Joseph Smith III is really setting out to disassociate polygamy from his father's name, which he shares. And it's, it's really that, uh, attempt to clear his father's name of polygamy that inspires a number of other people, particularly Joseph F. Smith, but a number of other people, even others that I haven't mentioned, like Charles A. Shook, um, to collect documents and carefully uh, evidence his father's polygamy. And so to a great extent, we owe, uh, particularly we as historians, you know, studying this, we owe a lot of our record of Joseph Smith's polygamy precisely to his son's denials of it. I think, um, I think there's, there's a lot of value in the result of all this for, um, Latter-day Saints, uh, Utah Latter-day Saints, um, since obviously it, it helps to nail down that Joseph Smith was the one who started the practice of polygamy and helps to flesh out more of the details of that. And I think, um, I was recently reading the, the Community of Christ, um, what used to be the RLDS church has, uh, recent, recently adopted or its first presidency put out a few years ago, what they call church history principles. And I find them really fascinating. And one of them is, um, that this proper study of church history and paraphrasing the proper study of church history includes repentance. And the idea seems to be that if we look back in our history, we will find mistakes, but then those mistakes help us to see what we need to move beyond, that maybe we have vestiges of these older practices or ideas that are still influencing us, and we need to acknowledge that those have been part of our tradition, that maybe we're still influenced by them, and find a way to grow past them. And even though that's that's not uh, something that the Utah LDS Church has adopted, I really like it. And I think um, that it's something that uh, people of any religious, it's an idea that people of any religious tradition could benefit from, that, that studying our history, even when we find warts in our history, even when we find um, negative things or sins or uh, bad practices, that that can be that's that's not necessarily a negative thing because it gives us something it shows us what we can grow past it shows directions that we can grow um so that and I, I, and I, would t- I can add to that in in sure. terms of one of the other principles of history like you're pointing out not in the repentance i love that part one of the other ideas in there is that you know um understanding what our ancestors did, including all of their their failures and their flaws, makes them more real to us and makes the whole story more real and more meaningful and uh, more powerful to us than if we just, you know, assume that they're demigods who therefore don't resemble us since we know yeah. how of our own failings. And so to back to Lindsay's point, the thing that we get as a benefit in um, Community of Christ for having all of these um, wonderful 
uh, affidavits and all the other stories, and they would be the enrichment so that we understand the the women's stories that were involved in all this. Is not we don't it's not we didn't get to have this thing where Joseph Smith the third was proved right, but instead we are get the enrichment of all the stories of all the movement because. Um, you know, it's not just Joseph Smith. The whole history of the church is not just Joseph Smith's story. It's the story of all of these people and what they all went through and some of the, you know, the tragedies and, and, and terrible things that people went through and also the wonderful things that resulted from some of these things. And so having the, this extensive additional amount of story that we otherwise just would have been lost to us is just an incredible treasure to all of us whose inheritance this is. And I think that that's what's so poetic about your framing in your article, Don, is that we see these two men who have completely different motives and reasons in some regards, but then there are some similar roots, right? Like they, these people want, um, they want to honor their parents. They want to honor their own life choices. And so they're driven by the same things and we get two different stories. And so... That's, I think it's really beautiful how you framed it, John, how, um, it does. It sort of, it sort of, this story really tells the complexity of the story of Joseph Smith and the story of polygamy and the story of our ancestors. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, both these men, both these family namesakes of Joseph Smith, who, who in their respective traditions ended up being his successor as prophet president, they both believed what Joseph Smith had said about polygamy, right? But one of them believed what he had said about it publicly, and the other one believed what he had said about it privately. And that's one of the complexities of this early history, right, is that it's, you've got, um, there wasn't just one voice. Even Joseph Smith has multiple voices that, you know, people are tuning in to one or the other. And then this leads these people on these very different paths. And, um, that creates, creates a, they create it, <laughs> sorry, they create their own complexities. Well, that's a fantastic way to end it. Do you guys have any final thoughts or do you want to end it on that? Let's end it right there. That was great. Thanks. Well, I, it's always such a joy talking to you, John. And Don, thanks so much. It was so great yeah. to have you on. And I just oh, think, I loved it. yeah, you're important. You're such an important voice in this history. And so it's an honor to have you on as well. So thank you so much. And we will link to, I, I don't think the article's online, it's, but it's in the Persistence of Polygamy, right. Volume 1. Right. Volume 2. Volume 2. two. Sorry, Volume 2. Um, we've been linking to both of those quite frequently oh, cool. in good. just about every episode. So Because we, we pulled from them so the, much. The third one's about to come out. So I really? know. I'm so excited. But you probably <laughs> will be done with the series by then. Uh, but everyone go ahead and watch for that. And I mean, these books are great. They just have such a great collection of different, really thoughtful essays. And it's probably, I've learned so much from each of those compilations. So thank you guys for your contributions there. And thanks for coming on to the Feminist Warm Housewives podcast. And thanks everyone for listening for another episode of Year of Polygamy.